We're turning back to Luke 17 this morning as we continue through Luke's gospel, looking back at verses 20 through 35 this morning. Luke 17, 20 through 35. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Talking about the new building, I was thinking about a pulpit. (laughs) Today I got a lot of stuff up here. (laughs) Looking at the end times for the last month and a half, it's like I got notes and I got notes and I got notes. And so we got a full pulpit, so hopefully I can keep it all straight. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, as we consider what will be the greatest display of your power and your glory, Uh, the second coming of Christ, when He comes in all glory, not a type of glory that's veiled uh, in the humility of a human body that is being beat up by the hands of His enemies, But Father, we know that on that day, no enemy will prevail. 
And so, Lord, I pray that it would affect us in a way that helps us think about this world rightly, thinks about our neighbors rightly and our family members. Father, I pray that you would grant us perspective this morning. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're on our third week looking at Luke uh, chapter 17, verses uh, 20 through 35. And this passage is triggered by a question about when the kingdom of God will come. And last week we looked at some of the practical implications of what Christ wanted his disciples to know. Uh, and we looked at the two main things last week was we, we must believe God's words and we must not love this world. We must not believe false teachers who say there's the Christ or here's the second coming, but we should listen to His words and how God describes the second coming of Christ so that we're not deceived and that we should remember Lot's wife. That we want to be so in love with the world that while destruction is coming, we turn back because our heart really is seated down here in this world and not seated in God. This morning, we're going to look at this text and ask ourselves, what is the nature of the second coming? What does the Scripture have to say about this day and how ought it affect us? So you see in your notes there, the charge to hear the warning, to repent, and hope in Christ alone. The promise of the second coming is a warning that ought to cause all sinners to repent and find their hope in Christ. And everything we do the rest of this sermon is to, in a sense, in a rapid fire succession, try to look at this glorious day in such a way so that it has its proper effect on our hearts, so that it helps us think about the world rightly. It's going to be the best day there's ever been. And it's going to be the worst day that's ever been, depending on whether or not you know and love and have been waiting for Jesus Christ. What the second coming does as we look at it is it exposes something that our culture is taken by rampant silliness. If you turn on your television, it's silliness. It's 
lighthearted emotionalism. Any sort of gravity, eternal gravity, seems to be missing in our culture. And we can't help but look at Christ riding on the clouds and learn something about this world. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, tells us that eternity is put in man's heart. That is why comedians can be some of the most depressed people in the universe. Why? Proverbs 14.13 says, even in laughter, the heart may ache. So we can laugh and we can be silly and we can do all this stuff and build up this American dream mentality where this is life. It's, it's imagine it, go get it. Don't leave, you know, check off everything on your uh, bucket list. Laugh along the way, but yet God made us with eternity in our hearts. It doesn't work. The way America does it with all of our stuff and all of our entertainment doesn't work. That's why depression is at an all-time high when our wealth is at an all-time high. So as we look at Christ, as, as we look at the great day of the Lord, as we look at the wrath of the Lamb, it helps reality break into our lives. It helps perspective, helps us think about our neighbors and our friends and our family differently. And it's my prayer that it will have that effect on you. So as I looked at Luke 17, verses 22 through 37, which is specifically describing the, uh, the day of the Lord, the day Christ will come, I saw at least 11 descriptive uh, uh, truths about the second coming of Christ. For the great and awesome day of Christ will be the beginning of Christ's millennial reign on earth. We'll talk about that in a moment. It'll be desired. It'll be global. It'll be seen by all. It'll be bodily. Meaning we'll be in our bodies and Christ will be in his body and it'll really be on this earth and won't just be off in spiritual, spiritual land, but Christ will return bodily. It'll come after many warnings and signs and calls for repentance. It'll be supernatural and cataclysmic. It won't be normal. It won't just be like it is. Now it'll be more like the ten plagues in Egypt. It'll be taken for granted. Though there'll be warnings and calls for repentance, people won't be ready. It will be terrifying judgment on all non-believers. 
while Christ's first coming displayed his mighty mercy and grace and patience, his second coming displays his justice. The fact that there is going to be a judgment day, that the time for repentance will end and judgment will come. It'll be divisive. (laughs) Two people, a husband and wife will be in the same bed. One will be taken, swept away into hell, and one will be left to reign with Christ in his kingdom. And it'll be glorious. It'll be glorious. It'll be Christ in all his glory. So as we look at Luke 17, we're going to spend less time there. We're going to look at it quickly, see some of these things, then go to other places in Scripture that also speak of this day. So I would say, hold on and get ready because God has a lot to say about this culminating day. The first point in your notes It'll be the beginning of Christ's millennial reign on earth. Now, the point of this sermon is not to argue for one view over another. I'll simply tell you what my view is. And and when we get to chapter 21, we'll work through these views more. But in Revelation chapter 20, it describes a millennial reign, a thousand-year reign of Christ. uh, And how a person understands where the second coming relates to that millennial reign pretty much sifts you into the three main views of eschatology. So there's an amillennial view that says there's not going to be a literal earthly reign of Christ on this earth. It's a spiritual reign. We're actually in the thousand-year reign. We're in the kingdom reign right now. and one day Christ will show up and will enter the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. So they believe Christ will return bodily. He'll show up and will enter in to the eternal reign. All millennial means no millennium, at least not a literal millennium reign on this earth, but a spiritual one. And there's kind of a cousin to amillennialism. It's called postmillennialism. And that view uh, believes that Jesus will come back after a millennial reign on this earth, after God's kingdom is set up. So Christ will set it up through his people. He won't bring the kingdom with himself, but through the preaching of the gospel, uh, the reign of Christ will happen on this earth. So many postmillennialists will read chapter 19 of, of Revelation where Christ is coming on the white horse. And what they will say is, is that's a spiritual image of, of what Christ will do powerfully through the preaching of the gospel. So when we preach the gospel, it's like Christ coming on a white horse and conquering his enemies. And uh, so after a 
certain kingdom. Some post-millennialists believe it'll be a thousand years that'll start at some point in time. Some thinks it's an indefinite amount of time. Thousand years is representative of uh, amount of time. But premillennialists believe that Christ will come before the kingdom. And it's because when Christ comes, that's when he'll take the throne of David literally on this earth and rule in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Uh, so that's about as much as I'm going to say. We can get into that more just to give you a little bit of an idea of the different views out there. And it's good to be humble when you come to the uh, last things, when you come to eschatology, because the Bible scholars with Christ's first coming struggled as well. You see, they didn't see a Messiah coming, dying on a cross. They didn't understand that. They didn't understand a Christ that would come, go up to heaven, wait, several thousand years before he comes back again and completes uh, his reign. And so when we look at the last things, everybody's dealing with the same material and the same things, but as we try to put it together and what comes first and what comes after, it becomes difficult. It's kind of like looking at mountains from a long ways away. They all look like they're on the same plane, yet some are further miles behind another peak. And so we must be humble as we uh, study these things and just admit that in order to have your hands around the end times, you need to have, in the last things, you need to have your hands around the book of Ezekiel and Zechariah and Daniel and Jeremiah. So if you... If you want to be really confident, then hopefully you have those things in your hands before you ever get to Revelation and First and Second Thessalonians. And we can just admit, Scripture says a lot about it. There's so much we can know. And there's things that seem to be a certain way. So I lean towards premillennialism. Therefore, the first point in the notes here is that that great and awesome day will be the beginning of Christ's millennial reign on earth. And I'll show you why I think so, looking at Luke 17, uh, beginning in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, so that's the question. We can't lose track of that question as we get into the rest of uh, Luke 17. Jesus said, there's a type of kingdom that is now. It's not coming, it is. And it's in your midst. It's inside of you. It's what the gospel does, what regeneration does, what the new birth does inside a person to where that person says, Christ is king. His kingdom have rule over my heart. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. That's a kingdom explosion into a person's life that was spiritually dead. 
and it can't be seen. And so Jesus juxtaposes that which can't be seen and that which will be seen. Because in verse 22, he says to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And then he says, people say, look here, look there, don't follow them, for he's going to come like lightning. Everyone's going to see it. So you see the difference? When's the kingdom coming? Well, it is in your midst. And it'll come the way you're asking about it, Israel, when he comes riding on the clouds, when he comes like lightning. So why does Jesus talk about the great day, the day of the Lord that the Old Testament speaks of, this great day of judgment? Why does Jesus talk about that when he gets asked about when the kingdom will come? And what I'm arguing is the reason why he talks about that is because that's when the kingdom is going to be fulfilled in the way that they're asking the question. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Matthew 25 and look at verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. I I can already tell this is going to be a two-part sermon, so don't be getting nervous that how are we going to get through all 11 things here. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory. So, He's already there. So he's not talking about his incarnation coming into the world. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Which means there's two thrones. Because... When Christ ascended into heaven, where did he go? To the right hand of God to sit on the throne of God. But Jesus says here, when the Son of Man, which is a statement that points you back to the great day of the Lord in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, not in his humiliation, That's how he came the first time. He came humbly. No one knew it. His enemies struck him in the face and he let them. He kept his mouth shut. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So point one in your notes is the coming of Christ will be the beginning of Christ sitting on his glorious throne. And then he says in verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. 
which, if you look at number 10 in your notes, this great day will be divisive. It'll divide people into groups. And then in Luke chapter 21, in verse 24, We read about this great day. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. So in 70 AD, Israel, our, our Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple and all of its stones, just like Jesus prophesied, would be laid waste. And just like the flood shows us something about God's judgment, just like Sodom and Gomorrah does, so also 70 AD shows what God's judgment can look like at the hands of the enemies, God doing it through his enemies. But look at what it says. They'll be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, beginning in 70 AD, until... The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Which seems to give hope for Jerusalem and for Israel. That the trampling will only last so long. That there will be a time when the Gentiles will come in. My personal belief is the, that time ends when the rapture happens, a pre-tribulational rapture, which we would, we'll look at when we get to chapter 21 in Luke. But then the time of the Gentiles will come in and the hardening that was put on Israel, ethnic Jews will be lifted and there will be a great number of Jews that will come to know Christ. And at the end of that, seven-year tribulation, Christ will come on that great day and he'll take his throne. And Israel will have no enemies anymore. And then in verse 25 of Luke 21, it says, and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on earth distress of Nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. You mess with the moon, you mess with the waves, right? We know that. I don't know if they knew that back then. God knew it. As the moon is messed with, you see in your notes, number seven, it will be supernatural and cataclysmic. There will be warning signs that it's coming in the heavens. And it says people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory and our language fails, right? He's coming on the cloud with power and great glory. And we can't even imagine this because Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, 
sees Christ seated on the throne. He's just sitting on the throne. The whole train fills the temple in the vision he has of Christ. And what does he say? Woe am I. Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. He sees his glory and says, wow, that I'm not thinking about this is cool. I'm thinking about this is different. This is glory on display. And yet this is that same glory coming with great power, coming with Christ who has a rod of iron in his hand. He's coming to bring justice. And so we read these texts and you just have to fight not to be dull of heart. You have to imagine what does it look like when he comes in great glory? What will it be for your neighbors? What will it be for your children? What will it be for those on this earth outside of Christ? You see, if you can see something of this, it helps guard your hearts. It helps give you perspective on what matters and what this life is all about. One more verse, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 4. One more text on this. Uh, it'll be the beginning of Christ's millennial reign on earth. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 4, it says, These are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, We heard a cry of panic, of terror, and of no peace. Ask now and see. Can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor. Why is every face turned pale, which will be what happens on that great day? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. Great tribulation, yet he'll be saved out of it. And I can't read verse 7 of Jeremiah 30 and imagine 70 AD, Nero destroying Jerusalem as the great day of, of like there's never been before. And they're not saved out of it either. Jerusalem is destroyed. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke off your neck and I'll burst your bonds and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I'll raise up for them. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, 
O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and none shall make him afraid. For I'm with you to save you, declares the Lord, and I'll make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, of whom I will not make a full end. I will discipline you with the just measure and I'll by no means leave you unpunished. So Israel's disciplined, but they're not put to an end. You see, whenever I would look for the great day of the Lord in the Old Testament and in the prophets, it's linked to mercy finally being shown to Israel. Which is why I can't take the view that when Christ came, God was done with Israel. Look at 70 AD and all he has going is the Gentiles. There's a hardening on Israel. Very few ethnic Jews are trusting in Christ. And we're warned in Romans chapter 11 not to become proud as Gentiles, thinking God's done with them. Romans 11, 11 says, So I ask, did they stumble, meaning the Jews, in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Wait a minute. So you break off a natural branch, you harden Israel, the Gentiles come in with what purpose? to make Israel jealous. That's not God being done with them. That's God hardening them for a time. There will be the great day of Jacob's mourning when they see that they have pierced the Christ and repentance will come. All right. Enough on that. Let's look back at Luke 17. The second coming will be desired in a way that it's not already here. We desire to see Christ bodily on a throne. We're tired of our politicians, aren't we? Are we tired of our leaders? Does not every Christian long for the day when Christ will come and put the government on his shoulders? Isn't that what we want? It'll be desired because it's not already here in that sense. It'll be global. So if you look at uh, verse 22, he said to his disciples, Disciples, the days are coming when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. You will not see it. And they'll say to you, look there, look here, do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so the Son of Man will be in his day. It's going to be global. Everyone's going to see it. No one will miss it. It won't just be another Amazing day on earth. It'll be a day like no other day when Christ comes. 
And then as we read on, it says, just as it was in the days of Noah. That's an incredible clue because we can read about what happened in the days of Noah. And I'm assuming uh, that you know the story. So it'll be in the days of the Son of Man. They'll be eating and drinking and marrying and being given a marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So there'll be preaching. He was a preacher of righteousness. He had the biggest sermon illustration ever, a monstrous ark before it had ever rained on earth, probably. Build a boat on land. This is the craziest man ever. Well, yeah, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Well, just like in the days of Noah, with great warning and calls to repentance, it'll be ignored. And people will be going on, ignoring the signs and the warnings, and it'll come upon them, and they will be destroyed. That's sobering to think. You know, how could Pharaoh just look at these plagues and keep hardening his heart? You say, how could he do that? How could he do it? They'll do it. There'll be greater signs leading up right before those days. And according to the book of Revelation, they will harden their hearts just like they did in the days of Noah. It says they were eating and drinking and marrying, being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, so we get another illustration, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling planting and building, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Same phrase. It's going to be a day of judgment, just like it was in those days. It's going to be a day preceded by warnings, and it's going to be a day of total judgment on God's enemies. There's not going to be one survivor for those who don't heed the warnings, which means every person in this room, your entire eternity is distinguished with what do you do with the warnings? Last week we had communion. Every time we have communion, we declare to this congregation in this world that Christ died on the cross and he's coming again. There's signs, there's, there's warnings that our entire life will be determined with what you do with Jesus Christ and what you think of him. If you think of him as a nice little teacher that can give you emotional security and, and nice, clean friends, then you don't know Christ. You don't understand it. You haven't looked long enough. You have to see, you have to read Revelation 19. You have to see blood dripping from his robe as he's treading the winepress of the wrath of God. And so from looking at Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah, we can see that there's going to be warnings and calls for repentance. We can be, see that it's going to be supernatural and cataclysmic. We can see that it'll be taken for granted. We can see that it'll be terrifying judgment and unbelievers. We can see it'll be divisive. 
right? Noah and his family lived. Lot and his family lived. There were those who were saved out of that judgment. And then he says in verse 34, I tell you in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. And they said to him, where Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And when you read this in Matthew's version, it's best to understand this not as a, a rapture text, but those who are taken are those who are swept away in a flood like Noah's. And there will be those that will be left that won't, the judgment won't destroy them. They'll rule with Christ. The second coming will be bodily. In Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, it's a really helpful text because they asked the same question. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice what he doesn't say. This is after he's resurrected. He's already defeated Satan on the cross. He doesn't say, I already have. Israel's the Gentiles. The kingdom's here. That's, that's not what he says. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authorities, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come to you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. He describes their ministry. That's what you will do. You'll be witnesses. You'll be preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then he says, and when he had said these things, they were looking on and he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. It's going to happen in the same way. His literal body went up to literal clouds into the literal sky, and they said he's going to come back literally in his body back down to this earth. The beginning, Revelation 1-7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Matthew 24, 29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, 
And then all tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Zechariah 14 says it this way. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. So there's going to be a great battle in Jerusalem and the city will be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations when he fights on the day of battle. This isn't God destroying Israel through Nero. This is the nations gathering to destroy Jerusalem and God fighting for them. And then in verse 4 it says, On that day his feet, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. That's a really specific place, a really specific description of where the Mount of Olives is. And it says, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall be moved northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains for the valley of the mountain shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzzah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and the holy ones with him. So he'll come and there will be those with him clothed in white robes. You can read about it in Revelation 19. We're not going to get there today. But Christ is going to come. He's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. It's going to be a bodily return. I don't think that's just mere symbolism. It'll be cataclysmic. Ezekiel 38:17. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servant, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? But on that day, the day that Gog, which I think is a term representing God's enemies, Gog, shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath shall be aroused in my anger, for in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. There will be real cataclysmic events in those days when God's wrath is angered as he destroys Israel's enemies. In Luke 21, 25, it says, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they shall see the Son of Man coming with power and 
great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And we're running out of time much quicker than I had planned. But I hope you got a foretaste. No matter what view you take of the end times is not the fundamental thing. Every view believes Christ will return. And we will face either the great conquering king who is our savior and the one who will protect us and will rule for us or will be destroyed, not because he's a big meanie, but because he's good and because he's just and because the warnings were rejected and the blood of Christ was trampled. And man said, no, I don't want you. I don't want your kingdom. I want to worship your creation. I want to worship idols. And so my prayer is, whether you're a little boy here or a little girl, or whether you're an old man or old woman, all of us can understand that when we face Christ, we will give an account. He's not just our peer. He is a judge. He is God. And He will rule righteously. And your sins will either be on your head because you rejected Him, or you will turn to Him and see that He is the Lamb who was slain for you and cling to Him. It'll be the best day or it'll be the worst day. But it won't be a sentimental day. It'll be a weighty day. It'll be a heavy day. As we see eternal souls go to destruction. Father, I pray that no one here would make light of the reality of the second coming of Christ. Father, I pray that none of us would just go on with our day as though this is a fairy tale. Your word is true. It's been proven true. Your prophecies have been fulfilled over and over and over again. The one who gave us your words Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit prayed that we'd be sanctified in that word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us spiritual strength to see through the silliness, to take life seriously, to rejoice greatly in our salvation in Christ, but yet still have tears in our eyes seeing a world that's hell-bent for destruction. Lord, I pray that you would give us your heart just as Jesus stood over Jerusalem and wept. Father, give us that sort of compassion. Father, help us not to fail to do what you called us to do, to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.